right, everyone, welcome back. So you may have noticed we're playing a little bit with the service format right now. We will be having some more musical worship time in response to what Andrea uh, will be sharing with us. And I think there's going to be some interaction uh, between us as well. So welcome to the one, two, third uh, sermon in or teaching time in the series that we've started called Psalms for the Journey. So lots of you have been journeying along with us, reading through Psalms 120 to 134. Uh, the really great thing we have going this summer is a team of CAP uh, folks who are bringing God's word to you every week. So this week it's Andrea's turn. And I'm really looking forward to what she's going to bring to us. What she's going to bring to you is lots of what she has thought about, but also I know that there's lots of fruit that's come about as a result of the interactions from our um, teachers' meetings that we meet every Monday night to kind of wrestle through uh, the passage, and it's been a really rich time. So would you join me in praying for Andrea as we uh, prepare to hear what God might have to say to us? Lord, we pray that you would speak. For we, your servants, want to listen. Thank you that your servant, Andrea, has been listening, has been reading, has been praying, that we together as a team have been listening and praying. And so we invite you to show us more of yourself today and to speak, for we are listening. And all captured said, Amen. Well, good morning. So if any of you were here at my last foray into speaking, you will remember that I spoke for some 50 minutes on about six, seven, eight chapters of Exodus. There were at least 150 verses. And um, I didn't really even do it, it adequately cover all the content in 50 minutes. But if I do my math correctly, given that this uh, chapter has seven verses. This should take about two and a half minutes, and we'll be off on our day. It's too bad it's not raining. I mean, it's raining. It would have been nice if it was sunny. You could just take off. However, it will not take only two and a half minutes, but it will not, I promise you, take 50 minutes. Um, so we're in the Songs of Ascent, and uh, this is the first of the Songs of Ascent, Psalm 120. Um, it illustrates, all of the Songs of Ascent illustrate the kind of pilgrimage of the Hebrews who are dispersed in their daily lives, but they uh, take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year where they gather to remember uh, Yahweh's acts on their behalf, um, receive teaching, engage in worship, bring gifts. Uh, there's always a, an element of bringing the first fruits of whatever harvest has been going on. Um, but this, this psalm is only the first song on this journey that they take. Um, the scholars are not entirely certain as to how these things were handled, whether it was priests who sang them, whether it was everybody who sang them. Um, and given that the journey was four to five days, usually for lots of people, um, and there's 15 of them, I don't know how they divided them up if it was all of them, but I'm going with everybody sang them because it suits what I want to say to you today. And, uh, and it's where most people tend to land uh, as to what the purpose of these were. So it's not the whole story. Um, it is just a part of the story. And it's a, uh, when we read the Psalms, they, they, they speak of our personal experience and with this psalm, I want you to remember that this, while it can stand alone, it's part of a bigger arc, a bigger dramatic arc 
of these songs of ascent. So I would say, I was thinking about it, it's kind of like the songs in The Sound of Music. Uh, but, but it's not exactly, because it's more like reality TV, where the participators, except for not the foul language and the nudity and the sex, it's just, uh, we're just participants, and we're not observers. So the first song in The Sound of Music is Maria, if you remember, you know, how do you solve a problem like Maria? And it sets up the plot for the, the movie. It's, um, she's a young woman, she leaves a cloistered existence, she's not thriving there, she goes into the world to find herself, and she becomes a governess to uh, children of a conveniently single rich man. She marries him, escapes the Nazis, climbs a mountain, and lives happily ever after in Vermont. So she starts in a place where she is not thriving, where she doesn't fit, uh, where she doesn't actually belong. It's a good enough place to be if you're a nun, but she's not a nun. It's not where she belongs. So she's journeying to find her ultimate home, uh, and the songs illustrate that journey. So Psalm 120 is kind of like that. So imagine, if you will, uh, that you're preparing to go on a trip. Your bags are packed, your vaccinations are done, your sunscreen, your bathing suit, your flip-flops are all packed in a carry-on bag. You're with your friends, you're pretty excited, and you board a plane, and it's a WestJet plane. The cheery WestJet flight attendant demonstrates the life-saving gear and seatbelts and lets you know about the exits and washrooms. And as the plane taxis down the runway, he leads you in a spirited song for the road. And this is how it goes. I'm in trouble. I cry to God, desperate for an answer. Deliver me from the liars, God. They smile so sweetly but lie through their teeth. Do you know what's next? Can you see what's coming, all you barefaced liars? Pointed arrows and burning coals will be your reward. I'm doomed to live in Meshach, cursed with a home in Kedar. My whole life lived camping among quarreling neighbors. I am all for peace, but the minute I tell them so, they go to war. Now Archie's going to read it again for us. I am in trouble. I cry to God, desperate for an answer, deliver me from the liars, God. They smile so sweetly, but lie through their teeth. Do you know what's next? Can you see what's coming? All you barefaced liars, pointed arrows and burning coals will be your reward. I'm doomed to live in Meshach, cursed with a home in Kedar my whole life, lived camping among quarreling neighbors. I'm all for peace, but the minute I tell them so, they go to war. So what are your first reactions? Just call out from where you are. What, what strikes you about this? What are the words that you notice? Desperate. Desperate. Smile sweetly and lie through their teeth. Yeah. Bitter. Yeah. Can't win. Can't win. Hopeless. I want to get off the plane. You want to get off the plane. <laughs> I hear you, Lynn. Yeah. Doomed. How it mirrors to time today. Yeah. They're not my people. They're not my people. Yeah. So the the um, just a little uh, map uh, is next, just so you understand the <clears throat> excuse me the uh, Meshach and Kedar ep, uh, references. Meshach is kind of in the general, where you see Black Sea up at the top, 
That's where Meshach was generally. And down where you see Mecca at the bottom, that was generally where Kedar was. Um, there's not, I don't know that anybody really knows exactly where they are, but those are, those are the general places. It's not likely literal, but it could be because those were places of exile. But um, for our purposes, it, it's a sense of being caught in uh, between um, uncivilized and barbarous and savage societies. It's, it's that sense of not being at home, of not being in where you belong. It's, it's a sense of there being turmoil around you and uh, you're feeling kind of hopeless, just all those words that you said. Other language that is used in the, um, with this, the, the literal translation of some of these words, you could say, I'm doomed to sojourn in Meshach, um, cursed to dwell in tents in Kedar, um, kind of a sense of being caught between excuse me, between Hollywood and Bay Street, it's, it's, it is definitely uh, a, something that we can relate to. Um, and then there's a sense of camping among quarreling neighbors. So there's a temporary nature of this existence of being caught in this, in this nasty uh, space. Um, he's not at home. He's a stranger in a strange land. And his instinct is for peace. Um, for shalom, but chaos breaks out around him, and he is um, a very unhappy pilgrim. So I would ask then, I asked myself when Kim, first of all, Kim asked you know, us to pick a psalm, and I landed on this one, and I wasn't quite sure why, because it, it's kind of a downer, and I, it, but I, it intrigued me, because I was thinking, well, why would this be the first song? And I suppose that the sages in the days past who assembled the Bible um, had their reasons, and I'm not sure that they would know for sure that this was the first song that was sung, but I think they got it right. It's in the right place for me in the Song of Ascents because it's the uh, this sense of discomfort and not belonging and alienation is the starting point for pilgrimage. It's the starting point for the journey to worship. And if he felt at home and he felt comfortable um, and had a sense of connection to the culture around him, would he actually set out on this journey? That's the question I ask myself. So this song um, accompanies the first act of this story, but it's a song of the in-between, the not yet, um, and it's the cry of the pain of exile. So he doesn't belong where he is. He's heading to his true home, and he needs to go. To Jerusalem. So a, a word about exile. Um, there are many ways of, of dealing with exile. Um, the first one that occurred to me was withdrawal and I grew up in a culture of withdrawal in my church. It was a sense that uh, the world out there wasn't where we belonged and so we huddled together uh, with other Christians. We uh, um, I don't remember that my friends had, or my parents had a lot of friends that were not Christians, were not people in our church or in churches that we knew and approved of. There was a real uh, sense of gathering in and of withdrawing from the world. Um, and that's not what we're called to do. Jeremiah calls us to work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray, the, pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. So that, that life of withdrawal is not what we're called to. 
Uh, another option is assimilation. You settle in. You become indistinguishable from the natives, uh, except all the, the lies and the half-truths, and you reconcile with them, and you find comfort in that, uh, that you aren't necessarily noticed. Um, but I don't think that's what we're called to either. In John 15, Jesus says, you don't belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. And in Romans, do not conform to the pattern of this world. So we're not called to assimilate either. So what are we called to? Well, I think that we're called to be ambassadors. Uh, we represent the sovereign. sovereign. Uh, we promote the interests of our home country. We provide assistance to citizens in exile. We provide a liaison between this country and our home. But even an ambassador gets worn down in the world that they are called to. Even an ambassador needs to go home once in a while for retraining, for refreshment, uh, to recover that joy of, of home. And this exile, the exile uh, that, this, that wrote this psalm, we don't know who he was or who she was, maybe, uh, this exile's in desperate need of a furlough, uh, tired of the, of the fight to hold on to his values, to God's values. I don't know if you're familiar with the term furlough, but when I was a kid, missionaries would come home on furlough, and uh, they would sort of come into your community, and they would uh, speak of the life that they had out in wherever it was that they were missionaries, and they would come home, and it would be a rest, a time of rest, a time of respite, a time of uh, refreshment, retraining, um, re-energizing. And so I think that's, this exile is, that's what he's, he's desperate for. And there's a sense of urgency in this psalm that really struck me. And I think that although I chose this psalm, I think that it chose me in a sense as well. Um, I was at an elders meeting a few weeks back and we were talking about um, reimagining Sunday mornings and um, trying to create um, a sense of worship and of, of being together, of gatheredness that is appropriate for us at this time in our, in our church's life. And, and I, made, I made the comment that I just hadn't really felt any sense of urgency or any kind of sense of wanting to worship very much lately. And I was shocked by, when the words came out of my mouth, I was thinking, mm, that's not really very good. I'm an elder. I should be, you know, excited about coming to church on Sunday morning and worshiping. And, and I started examining why that might be. And I think this psalm really helped me with that. Because I'm wondering if I've become a little bit too settled, if I'm a little bit closer to assimilation than I am to being an ambassador. Um, whether I've shrugged off the, the lies and the half-truths of my culture whether I've just become a little bit too comfortable with the way that things are. So if, if the exile, if the pain of exile is what drives the psalmist to worship, then if I'm not driven to worship, does that mean that I don't have enough pain in, in my exile? If I'm not really experiencing exile in the way that uh, is appropriate? So I'm wondering then if I'm defaulting to my own self-sufficiency, that I can handle this. I, all the problems that come up, I'm good. I'm good. I'm, you know, I'm, I've hit retirement now, so you know, my days float a little bit more smoothly and, uh, than they did when I had to get up and get myself ready for work. And 
what, what is that, what, what should it feel like to be in exile in my, at my stage of life? And, and I'm, I'm still struggling with that. Um, so I'm wondering if there's a relationship with how I live my life as an exile and my response to coming to God in worship. If I were to, my first reaction to putting this psalm in one phrase, it, it would be, this place sucks. Like, I don't want to be here. I need to go home to be with my people, to be with God. And yet, I don't have that experience every day, all day. I do lots. When I read my, you know, I open up the Globe and Mail and I start reading articles in the Globe and Mail and if I see the news on TV, this place sucks. It's a nasty place to be an ambassador. Um, and it's hard. It's hard to be an ambassador. It's hard because of all, I, I, for me, one of the, the lies, in a sense, and I, I almost hesitate to call it a lie, but that's part, of, that's part of the challenge, is this sense that everything's okay. You know, no matter what you believe, it's good. I'm in a choir, a gospel choir, and uh, you know, Jan and I and a couple of others are the only actual Christians in the choir. The rest of them are all, you know, they're Sufis, they're, they're atheists, they're Buddhists, they're, they're whatever. And everybody's happy, everybody's accepting. It kind of carves off the edges of what we can sing, though. We can't sing too much about Jesus because, yeah, it's just a little bit too much Jesus. And we've got to be careful about what we sing on the other way because the Christians might be upset. And it's just a, it's a very strange thing. And it, it, I feel sometimes quite, because I'm the president of this choir, I might add, I feel kind of like it's closing in on me a lot because I'm torn between carrying out the values of the choir and then there's my Christian values, and they, they're not always the same. So what does distinguish us from the culture? Does anything distinguish us from the culture? That's a question we can only answer for ourselves. What lies threaten us and weigh us down as we live in exile? Maybe the idea that you should indulge yourself because after all, you're worth it. Maybe the lie that there's a perfect marriage, a perfect family, perfect job, a perfect life. Maybe those who tell you how to live your life and don't talk about Jesus. The quick fix, the easy life, the lie that a world that doesn't know Jesus can deliver joy and confidence and success and love. So I want you to take a few minutes and you can just gather a couple of people around you. And I'd like you to talk about in your group what those lies might be, what you experience, uh, what it feels like to live in exile for you, what are the lies, the half-truths that threaten your existence in, uh, in exile. And I'd like you to listen to those around you that, that speak things that intrigue you because I want you to share those with us afterwards. No, don't always share, just share your own ideas, but. Uh, what intrigues you about what somebody else says that you can share with us. So we'll take a few minutes to do that. Just grab a couple of people around you, and, and if you just want to listen to what people are saying, that's good too. Just say, I'm listening. I'm listening. i got nothing to say, but I'm listening. Thanks. <laughs> 